0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. This episode of the Jolly Swagman podcast is brought to you by freelancer.com. Are you trying to start a business or do you already have one that needs extra help? You're doing yourself a serious disservice if you're not using freelancer.com. It's the world's largest crowdsourcing marketplace and that's both by number of users and projects posted. Full disclaimer, I know the CEO, Matt Barry, He's a great guy, a very uncorrelated thinker, and Matt has produced a true Aussie startup success story. Freelancer.com is where you go if you want to start a business or take an existing one to the next level. It does this by connecting entrepreneurs, that's you, with other entrepreneurs around the world, the freelancers. So if you need help with getting a website built, a mobile app developed, graphics designed, or even something more complicated like financial research, freelancer.com is where you can go to hire skilled professionals inexpensively. It can be for almost anything. It's home to over 1,600 different categories of work. It's free to post a project and to get quotes, so there's really no reason not to try it out. But in addition to that, listeners of this podcast can go to freelancer.com slash swagman where you can get an expert from their team of recruiters to reach out and help you find the best freelancer for your job and budget for free. So follow the link freelancer.com slash swagman, sign up and select the recruiter upgrade. I tried it out a couple of weeks ago and put up an ad for animated videos for the podcast. I got about 13 bids from real people around the world within about 20 minutes. No job is too big or too small. Go to freelancer.com swagman and post your project today to turn your dreams into reality. Who doesn't want that? This episode is also brought to you by Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that condenses the key takeaways from the best nonfiction books in the world into 15-minute blinks, which you can read or listen to. It might have seemed like Blinkist and I were always meant to be. I do try to read a lot of nonfiction, but the company has a checkered history with me. I remember the first time I heard about them. It was 2016. I was in a gym on Smith Street in Darwin, and I listened to my first Blink. After that, I thought, nah, not for me. No one shall do my reading for me. I'm a purist. Then, in 2019, the company contacted me about sponsoring the podcast. I negotiated a great deal, but then turned them down. For the same reason, no one should do your reading for you. There are no shortcuts. That was July 2019. What happened next was I started using the free annual subscription the company gave me during the negotiation process and I changed my mind. I worked out how to hack Blinkist. You see, I was thinking about it all wrong. Blinkist isn't a substitute for books. It helps you decide which books to read. Because the cost in reading, as one of my podcast guests once reminded me, isn't the sticker price on the book, but the hours of opportunity cost spent reading it. And you need to know before going in whether it's worth your time. Imagine you have a really smart friend who's read all the great nonfiction books in the world, and before you commit the time and money to reading a book, you check with your friend, is this worth reading? They give you an intelligent but concise summary of the whole thing, Well, Blinkist is that friend. It's kind of like the Amazon Look Inside feature or the Kindle sample feature, but it lets you understand the whole book rather than just reading the first chapter. Of course, there's no substitute for reading the actual book and understanding the author's reasoning in all of its detail, but in deciding what to read, don't judge a book by its cover. Use Blinkist. Go to www.blinkist.com swagman, where you can get 25% off an annual subscription and you get to try Blinkist Premium for free for seven days. Don't be a dummy, get on it. That's www.blinkist.com swagman. You're listening to the Jolly Swagman podcast. Here's your host, Joe Walker. Hello there, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, swagmen and swagettes. Welcome back to the show. On the 18th of February 2020, a 38 year old man, described as a marathon runner, took himself to the emergency room at a hospital in Cardonio, a small town in Lombardy. He had what he thought was a severe flu. After declining to be admitted, he headed home. But then feeling even worse, he returned to the hospital only a few hours later. On the 20th of February, he was sent to intensive care where he tested positive for COVID-19. This was Italy's patient one and February had been a very social month for him. With heavy symptoms, he'd gone to three dinners and played soccer with his team. If a week is a long time in politics, it is a lifetime in pandemics. Seven days after patient one was confirmed, Italy's infections inched over 400 cases, and Nicola Zingaretti, the leader of the governing Democratic Party, posted a picture of himself on social media, cheersing, an aperitivo in Milan. We must not change our habits, he wrote. Our economy is stronger than fear. Let's go out for an aperitivo, a coffee, or to eat a pizza. Fast forward to today, at the time of recording, a little over one month later, Italy has 69,176 confirmed cases of COVID-19 and 6,820 confirmed deaths. It is an epicenter of the pandemic. In its most productive northern regions, doctors are facing wartime-like triage decisions, and the New York Times reports that the coffins of COVID-19 victims are accumulating in the very churches that have stopped holding funerals for them. But amidst all the chaos and death, there is one little town that stands out as an island of hope and as a data point about how to control this virus. The town is called Vaux. Vaux is in the hills outside of Padua, or if you're more familiar with Venice, about a two and a half hour train ride west of Venice. Vaux is in the region of Veneto, which is adjacent to Lombardy. And Vaux is famous because it recorded Italy's first COVID-19 death on the 21st of February. By the next day, 3% of Vo's inhabitants were infected and Vo was staring down the barrel of disaster. Most of you are by now aware that South Korea has demonstrated that this virus can be controlled. So how do you solve a problem like Korea? Well, you learn from Vo. Luke the president of the Veneto region, sprung into action pre-empting the national government with his own lockdown. He focused especially on Vo and assigned a team of researchers from the University of Padua working in combination with the Red Cross to lead the epidemiological effort there. The researchers eradicated coronavirus in INVO in under 14 days. One of those researchers is an infections expert at Imperial College London. He happened to be on sabbatical at the University of Padua when the pandemic began. His name is Andrea Crisanti and he's our guest. Andrea is a full professor of microbiology at the University of Padua. He's best known for the development of genetically manipulated mosquitoes to prevent the spread of malaria. And he has over 100 papers published in leading scientific journals like Science and Nature. This conversation with Andrea covers what we can learn from his research in Vaux. It was recorded at about 9am Sydney time on Wednesday the 25th of March. So without much further ado, please enjoy this conversation with Andrea Crisanti. <laughs> Professor Andrea Crisanti, welcome to the podcast. Hello. It's an honor to speak with you. I thought first we could begin by getting a quick overview of what's happening in Italy at the moment. Uh, the last time I did a podcast on the coronavirus was about two and a half weeks ago with You Bayam And at that point, global infections had just passed 100,000 people. Uh, This morning, on Wednesday, the 25th of March in Sydney, when I checked the Johns Hopkins University dashboard, global infections have now passed 417,000 people. So the virus is certainly spreading quickly. Firstly, just tell us what's happening at the moment in Italy.
1: Well, uh, I think we are facing probably the worst of the epidemics. Uh, I think we we have a... Around 600 uh, deaths every day, and um, around uh, five thousand, five thousand six hundred new cases every day since uh, since a week now. In in spite uh, of uh, having a, implementing uh, uh, now a kind of nationwide quarantine.
0: Does the nationwide quarantine appear to be working?
1: Well uh in italy nothing is 100 uh, percent. so not even a quarantine uh, um, unfortunately some uh, some factories are still uh, open and some activity are still carried out so is uh i would say it's not yet 100 percent quarantine uh, with a total uh let's say in a standstill situation it's not not that yet, and obviously this uh, probably uh, will have an impact uh, for the effect uh, of the, on the spread of the virus. There are people that uh, question whether this is uh, strict enough.
0: The virus has been particularly bad in Lombardia, a region in the north of Italy. Why was that the case?
1: What do you mean particularly bad? Because uh, too many deaths, you mean?
0: It spread rapidly, and there were a lot of deaths. Doctors facing wartime-like triage.
1: It spread rapidly. I, I agree with you. Uh, for people that have never seen Lombardy, although this is a nice place to see, uh, it's uh, it's a continuous network or a small city and factories. It's really the the business core, one of the business core of Europe and uh, there are 10 million people living there and every day these 10 p- million people commute continuously from one small city to the other and plus milan is one of the major financial hubs of europe so it, it, it's not surprising that the virus spreads so quickly in lombardy because it's also very well connected uh, with airplane uh, railways so it's um It is a place where you see a continuous movement of people coming out and in. So,
0: right now you're in Veneto, which is another northern region adjacent to Lombardy, sitting to its east. Was Veneto uh, as affected as Lombardy by the virus?
1: Yeah, actually, Veneto was. uh, A couple of cities in Veneto were the first to be hit by the coronavirus yeah in veneto i'm sure you have heard in this, this small city of Vaux, we had uh, the first uh, case of coronavirus infection with a patient that died in hospital and was diagnosed just before
0: dying so that was a 77 year old man uh, adriano trevisan who passed yeah, away okay. on the passed away on the 21st of february yeah. now we need to talk about Vo because Vo has been a data point for the correct approach in battling the virus. And you were one of the people who led the project at Vo. Firstly, I just want to learn how you came to be in that position, Professor Cresante. So I understand you were on sabbatical at the University of Padua. Um, yes. How did you find yourself in charge or, or part of this project at VOE?
1: Well, as uh, as you correctly said, I was in sabbatical in Padua as professor of microbiology. And uh, so when um, when this first case uh, was reported, the local authorities of the Regione Veneto decided to lock down the place. And at the same time, they ordered everybody to be tested for the, for the presence of the virus in the swab, which was a kind of unprecedented uh, uh action and uh, in a way they have created a, a unique epidemiological setting as soon as i heard i talked to the governor of the region of veneto the president of the region of veneto and i asked if we could conduct a second survey uh, so uh, actually i must say it was uh it was quite supportive, so we have, we were able to conduct a second survey. And the second survey is very important because it wouldn't be uh, so informative if we have not conducted the second survey there. Uh, now, let me tell you what we learned from the first survey and what we learned from the second survey. Which, uh, uh, of course, this is a kind of uh, general um, observation because we are just about to to publish uh, to publish a paper on this so for more detail uh we, we need to wait uh, uh, one month more uh, so on the first occasion we found that uh, 89 people out of 3300 were already infected which uh, is a quite substantial fraction uh, which was uh, not recognized uh, on time by the italian authorities then, uh, when we start to look at the people who were infected, we immediately found out that a large proportion of them were asymptomatic.
0: What, what percentage?
1: That, yeah. yeah, now that we have reviewed and we have interviewed everybody again, uh, about 45%. So, in principle, these 45% didn't have any symptom of the disease. Uh, no conjunctivitis, no anosmia, no cough, nothing, not fever. Where well, they were totally unaware of being infected. Everybody positive for the virus was put under, uh, under quarantine and isolation. Then, uh, nine days after, we did a second survey and uh, we found eight people that are new infections. Now, all the new infections were asymptomatic. But the most interesting thing is that by identifying everybody, uh, we were able to drop the rate of people infected from 3% to 0.3%. So it's a 90% drop. Then when we clear these other eight people that were put in quarantine, then no more cases of coronavirus were detected in involved uh, since... Uh, now for weeks with exception of one person who was a relative living in the same uh, flat of an infected individual now the most interesting thing about then this new eight case that three of them were living in the same house with relatives which were asymptomatic so there is no doubt that the asymptomatic transmit the disease so this small little village Gave an incredible wealth of information about the the transmission of the virus, and also now we are doing a lot of uh, modeling analysis and understand other other properties of the virus. But now, if you now compare Vaux, which let's say is a close environment to what happened with the diamond princess, which again is a close environment with about the same number of people then they followed a completely different approach. Go after the case, make diagnosis only with symptoms, and I'm sure we all remember that every day tens of tens of new cases were reported. If they had followed the approach of vote, test everybody on the first day, they would have identified all the positive. then test a few six days after, they would have cleared the case from the beginning. So this, I think the Diamond Princess of all, are exactly the two extremes of the approach. Follow the case or follow the virus. Now, if you follow the virus, you are able to clear the the spread of infection. If you follow the case, you, you'll never come out of it.
0: Tell me a little bit more about what happens if somebody finds that they have symptoms. Do they call a hotline in Veneto? What do they do?
1: Yeah, now, uh, well, this uh, in Italy, usually, if somebody uh, uh, thinks they have symptoms, they call this uh, health the line They carry out a kind of a questionnaire. If they believe that the patient is in good health, they tell the patient to stay at home and call back in a few days uh, if things get worse. Now we are changing approach in Veneto. Uh, Veneto is leading a new approach. If somebody called the hotline, we'll go there, we do the test, uh, and uh, we look for increased complexity of, uh, uh, let's say, network of interactions. First, we test uh, the family, then we test the friends, and then we test the neighborhood. Uh, this is the, the approach, because uh, if... Uh, if we assume that these people have respect the quarantine, as is the case in Italy, then the infection must have been transmitted within this three circle of network. This is what we're doing. Uh, of course, in Lombardy, probably it's too late to do that. Probably in Lombardy, the only option now is a total lockdown and standstill situation for four or five weeks. That's the only way to come out from that
0: okay so you're scaling up the strategy of contact tracing from vo to all of veneto
1: yes well it will take a while of course sure. because uh, we estimated then for the old veneto to do this uh, systematically and also include the uh, category of work at risk and vulnerable people it will take about twenty thousand tests per day for example we are now uh, also screening uh people like uh uh cashier of supermarket, uh, we are screening uh, pharmacists, uh, we are screening, uh, for example, policemen, firemen, or public servants. And then we will also uh, include in our uh, screening approach of vulnerable people like uh, those that are housed in elderly home and their staff because we want to protect these, these environments.
0: How are COVID-19 tests done? What does the test look like?
1: Uh, the test is a, is, a, is a swab to collect the material, and then the swab is, uh, is an analyzed uh, is processed to extract the nucleic acid of the virus, which is an RNA filament, which is then amplified on selected region. And then uh, the reason that calculated the probability of them being positive.
0: You told me that about 45% of the infected individuals in Vo were asymptomatic. That seems broadly consistent with the international evidence. I believe the data from China suggests about 30% of their infected people were asymptomatic. And the data from Iceland suggests that about 50% of their infected were asymptomatic. I have an important question for you, Professor. What do you believe the R-naught for an asymptomatic person to be? Do you think the R-naught for the asymptomatic is greater than one?
1: Uh, we believe that the R-naught is significant because uh, we have uh, studied the uh, virus copy number load in asymptomatic and non-symptomatic people and we don't see great differences. And of course the symptomatic people have more opportunity to meet other individuals as they move around uh, and they are socially active, whereas the symptomatic people, you would assume that they are either at home or in, in hospital. So <clears throat> let's say the opportunity to transmit the disease is limited to their family members. Uh, but uh, about the, symptoma- the asymptomatic people actually, the Chinese at the beginning said that they, don't, they didn't have any asymptomatic. They always claim that all positive individuals, if they are symptomatic, they will eventually develop the disease, which is not what we see. So I, I think I'm, I'm surprised that the Chinese have missed the extent and the danger of asymptomatic people.
0: So let me make sure I, I have this correctly the viral load is roughly equivalent for symptomatic and asymptomatic people. And although the symptomatic shed more of the virus through, for example, coughing, that, yes. that is at least partly offset by the fact that the asymptomatic are more social for the precise fact that they don't have symptoms. So, they're still going about living their lives, interacting with other people.
1: Yeah, correct.
0: Have you have you actually tried to quantify the R naught for the asymptomatic?
1: Um, it's a bit difficult uh, because we don't have uh, enough uh, enough uh, data. Because the symptomatic, we have only for sure in transmission. We have only three. Now we have only on the second survey. We have only three people that live with a symptomatic infected individual that got symptoms. So the data is a little bit. Thing on that, but having said that, <laughs> uh, of these eight, three came from a symptomatic, three came from a family with people that had symptoms, and the other two we couldn't trace. So I, I don't think that there is much difference. I mean that the data doesn't allow to calculate exactly. There are not, but uh, on this, which is the most informative set of data so far available, it, it doesn't seems to be a huge difference.
0: If you had to take a guess, Professor, would you say this disease is propelled mostly by superspreaders or mostly by the asymptomatic?
1: I, I don't think. Well, the the data involved doesn't suggest the presence of superspreader.
0: You think? No. You think it's more about the?
1: No. Also, yeah. Also, on the basis of the the network of interaction, we don't have evidence of a superspreader. Well, occasionally there might be uh, one or two people that infect four or five individuals and maybe there are other that infect only one or two. But uh, I think in, uh, well, from what we see in V uh, we we don't have a single or two individuals that are the main source of infection.
0: The strategy that you designed in VO is broadly consistent with the strategy that's been implemented by countries like South Korea. It appears to involve three core components. Number one, mass testing, including of the asymptomatic. Number two, contact tracing. And number three, enforced quarantine. Does that accurately describe the approach?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I would add another element that you need to expand your uh, hospital capability because you will have to face an increased number of people that are hospitalized and uh, an increased number of bad in resuscitation units that are being occupied by these severe infections.
0: Now currently Australia is doing quite well in terms of tests performed. Uh, This data isn't quite so recent. This is up to the 20th of March, but 113,615 tests had been performed by Australia, which at that point in time placed us fourth in the world in terms of the total tests performed. uh, And per capita- we came in third, just behind South Korea. Number one is United Arab Emirates. I believe in the last day or two, we've actually surpassed South Korea in tests performed per capita, but somebody can correct me if I'm wrong. However, at the moment in Australia, only the symptomatic can be tested. My question for you, Professor... Should Australia be copying Vaux's approach of testing for the asymptomatic? And is there still time to implement the approach that was so successful in Vaux?
1: Yeah, of course, you cannot test all the asymptomatic people because nobody has the ability to test, I don't know, 25 million people. Exactly. Those that live in Australia. But definitely a country like Australia has the capability to test many, many people around the single clusters. This is what we are. Okay. Yeah, but if you have two, three people infected in a borough, you should really lock down the borough and find everybody. Or even if the two, three cases are in the same uh, apartment block, or let's say in the same, the same neighborhood.
0: So, it's, it's absolutely impossible to test the whole population, but what we mean when we say asymptomatic testing is we find the people with symptoms, then we trace their contacts, and then we test all of the contacts regardless of whether or not those contacts have symptoms.
1: Correct. Mm-hmm. That's what we indicate.
0: Okay. Right. Now, do you think the United States has reached the point where it's no longer possible to implement that strategy?
1: Well, United States, I think, also has another additional problem uh, which uh, now will, um, will become evident that I think they have uh, 40 million people that do not have uh, access to health insurance. Now, these people tend not to go to the doctor unless they are very, very ill. So this will uh, form a formidable reservoir of asymptomatic people or people infected with low level of uh, symptoms. And this will, uh, will be a big, big problem to, to, to deal with.
0: Professor, you mentioned four components to the strategy in Vo: mass testing, contact tracing, enforced quarantine and scaling up ICU capacity at hospitals. Are any one of these components individually sufficient or do they all need to be implemented in combination?
1: I I think you need to implement in combination. Uh, I see with great sorrow all the effort that Lombardy has made to scale up uh, their hospital capacity, but nobody has ever won a a battle by making hospital. Uh, And uh, an epidemic is a battle and the battleground really is on the field, not on the hospital.
0: Why do you think Asian governments have been more successful in getting the virus under control than Western governments thus far?
1: Well, they they tend to have a more autocratic regime, and uh, so this means that, uh, in principle, the the people is more. Uh, I would say, well, I could use the the word obedient.
0: <laughs>
1: they. Uh, they, 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 they tend to do what they are told. And, uh, and of course, the, the, the government, they have a lot of room to implement and measure that progressive limit of freedom. Um, so I think this is, this is the answer, probably. And unfortunately, the limit of freedom is one of the tools that we have to fight the disease.
0: Professor, people are going to listen to this podcast and they're going to say that Vaux is a small town of 3,300 people in the hills outside of Padua with only about one road leading into it. It's very easy to implement the strategy in Vaux that you implemented, but it doesn't mean that it's externally valid or that it can be scaled up to whole countries. What do you say to those people? Well,
1: no, in principle, I I agree that it's you can't scale to the whole country, but you can identify spots and places that you can isolate around cases. That that is what we advocate. You have four, five cases in the my neighborhood, or this is where you have to look for the for the contact and for the others, because they are there for sure,
0: Professor. Mark Lipsich wrote an article for STAT News on the 18th of March. He said, quote, In populations with good ascertainment of symptomatic cases, the number of infections is perhaps double what is observed. In well-tested countries, we can be nearly certain that no population has reached anywhere near half of its people infected. That means that when each country lets up on control measures, Transmission will increase and the number of cases will grow again, end quote. How should we think about the prospect of further waves of the disease after the initial lockdown period?
1: Well, this is, a, again, this is an important point because uh, after the lockdown people yeah, and the lockdown time, you have to use a metric to lift this measure, no? Of course, people may think, well, if we if we see that the case uh, dramatically decreases, maybe this is the right moment to start to be more lenient. But uh, I would disagree with that. I, I think the time where the cases start to decrease, you really need to be much more aggressive with active surveillance. Otherwise, you will likely to have a rebound.
0: Professor, I'm I'm all out of questions, but. I- I just wanted to ask. Finally, how are you?
1: Fine, uh, so far I'm okay. <laughs> thank
0: you very much. <laughs> uh, of course,
1: this is a question that we ask every time ourselves.
0: Huh? Yeah, that's right. Well, it's eleven forty-four p.m. where you are in Padua. Thank you so much for your time. I'll let you get some rest now. Be well.
1: Okay. Thank you very much. I, I hope you enjoyed it. Okay. Bye.
0: Ciao, ciao. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned as much in that conversation as I did. For links and notes to everything discussed, you can find those on my website, www.josephnoelwalker.com. That's my full name, J-O-S-E-P-H-N-O-E-L-W-A-L-K-E-R.com. You can also find me on Twitter. My handle is at Joseph N. Walker. Until next time, thank you for listening and be well. Ciao.